This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com slash masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Caroline Weaver from CWPencils.com explains how she makes a profit selling pencils online. On today's episode, you'll learn from two entrepreneurs that create a seven-figure business using video content. In this episode, you'll learn why you should first solve a problem and then build a brand around that problem, how to plan a content calendar for video content, and why you need to be on Amazon to combat copycats. Today, I'm joined by Nick and Alessia Galakovic from TheBeardKing.com. The Beard King is a lifestyle brand and grooming products line. It was started in 2015 and based out of Miami, Florida. Welcome, Nick and Alessia. Hi, Felix. Hey, Felix. Thanks for having us today. Yeah, excited to have you guys on. So tell us a little more about this brand. What, what kind of grooming products do you guys sell? The one we're known for is the flagship product called the Beard Bib, but I guess let's start off and kind of telling you how it came about. And um, essentially, when I first started growing facial hair, I was obviously uh, extremely excited. I was a, a boy now coming to manhood. And uh, I quickly realized, though, through that uh, facial hair journey that grooming the facial hair in itself was a very messy and uh, time-consuming task. So it living at home with my mother it was kind of like the first key point of she'd come in and, you know, I think, I think as a guy I did a decent job cleaning up, but unfortunately <laughs> I did. And so there was like little hairs everywhere and she would yell at me like, Nick, what are you doing? There's hair everywhere. Go clean it. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> when I met uh, my wife, Alicia, the same issue happened and she was yelling at me. So I was like, you know what? There has to be a better way than putting down like a t-shirt or a towel, and that's what I was doing before. Right, so that's what he would normally do. He would grab a dirty T-shirt or like a towel that was just hanging, and he would just lay it on top of the counter and, you know, do his grooming regimen. And not only was it creating more work and more of a mess, because now he would have to grab that towel or T-shirt, go to the, you know, the balcony and shake it off, and it would be a mess all over the balcony. And that, you know, in the towel, you those little hairs are stuck in within the towel. So now my, my dirty basket of laundry is now full of hair. So it was never really an easy... Um, an easy transition. And even though he tr- he did try to clean up best he could, I would always find those tiny, disgusting little hairs all over my, my makeup and my soap and my sink. And of course, it clogs the drains, as I'm sure you can imagine. Um, and sh- having to share one bathroom, that was never an easy um, scenario. So we, we thought, you know, there's got to be something out there. Of course, there wasn't. And Yeah. And so... And so leading into kind of the discovery is I, you know, I started searching online, you know, beard catcher, beard, bib, beard, whatever. And there was nothing. So I'm like, well, maybe, maybe I'll come up with something here. And so actually Lacey was out of town and I had like a few glasses of wine in me. I was sitting on the couch and I got my sketchbook out and I just started kind of sketching this idea and had in my mind. You had this problem that you knew existed. It's a problem that I'm sure you knew other people. It's not something that people talk about a lot, but I feel like within the last week, my fiance complained about the same exact uh, thing, <laughs> that, that same problem that you guys had faced. So you had created this prototype. What was next? Like, what was the next step that once you had created this prototype for yourself? Like, what, what was the next step in terms of creating a more, I guess, full-fledged product? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so... Alessia actually has this Italian tailor lady named Rosita, such a sweet, nice old lady. She's like our our grandma here in Miami. Um, (laughs) And so Alessia took we took the idea. We had a meeting with her um, and then you can kind of tell her the journey. Yeah. So we took our first uh, initial prototype and she she kind of tweaked it and made made it look more of a of an actual product, gave it some shape, you know, because Nick's initial prototype was just it was what it was, it was i think it was like a sheet or maybe like a, yeah <laughs> so um she she developed it she made it uh into an actual working product we added the pouch that i don't i don't know if you have seen the product but we have a, a 
the, the packaging in which it comes in is this pouch that's attached to the bib. Uh, so coming up with little details, you know, that would make the product um, a little more efficient and interesting. Uh, that was a really cool journey because we had never developed anything, really anything. Yeah, in the we past. had no experience in textiles and um, manufacturing. All these things we kind of were forced into this journey because of this idea. So right. we have the idea, but we have no idea how to get to the execution part of it. Right. So. And um, I feel as as an as a young entrepreneur, that's one of the hardest uh, parts of of overcoming. It's actually execute the execution of your idea and coming up with the right, um, you know, for example, the fabric, finding the fabric was something challenging and, and making sure that all the elements within the product actually worked because there's nothing that has never been done before. So we were kind of the pioneers and we had to come up with something that functioned as well as we would want it to function for our customers. Correct. Yeah. So at this time, had anyone seen this product other than you two and this uh, was it a tailor that you were working with at the time? Correct. Yeah, no, it was a tailor. Um, since we did, as, as we were mentioning earlier, searched for something to purchase as a customer on our own, we didn't find anything. So as easy as it is, kind of circling back to how she said, you know, we had to learn about fabrics and all that. And, you know, most people might see the product online. They're like, oh, that's simple. Two suction cups and a bib. Well, if you actually look at the intricate cuts and details and things that we did, it's much more, um, I would say, uh, not, not difficult to make, but it's it's just not a blanket and two suction cups. That was my prototype, but when we manufactured it, um, it was very detailed. So, what, what was your what was your question again? Yeah, my question was just uh, while you were going through this process of creating these prototypes for yourself, and then eventually uh, working on a much more refined product with this local tailor. Did anyone else see the product at the time? Meaning, did did you have uh, potential not customers but friends and family looking at it? Like, how much did you know about uh, whether it was a pervasive problem that other people were facing, or did you kind of not know that yet? We had our family and our friends and neighbors look at it. And of course, you know, if you see our, our social media and our marketing, and even if you first look at the video with the product, you kind you don't know if it's an actual product. You kind of laugh at it because it's something so silly. Uh, and it just triggers that, you know, that emotion of, of oh, my God, this is, you know, why didn't I think of this? So, Correct. of course, mm-hmm. our family and friends were, um, they were critical and they would laugh at it. But, you know, it, the point is, it solved a problem. It, it solved some a problem that a lot of men that have facial hair that trim and their wives or, you know, the person that you coexist with, everyone faces. And so, um, yeah, it was comical. And, you know, we're laughing with you because yeah. it is a fun product to. But at the end of the day, the consensus was it's actually ingenious. Like the right. first take is this is kind of funny. It's a man bib. I mean, guys are supposed to be manly. <laughs> but also we preach that. Working smarter, not harder is manly. So how Alessia was saying with the prototypes, and I actually became dependent on it. Every time I've trimmed now, I actually, since we made our product uh, a little over two years ago, I haven't trimmed without it. It just doesn't make sense because it it makes such a mess. So it's one of those things. It's almost like ignorance um, is what makes it kind of funny and people might, you know, question it. But once you try it, you're like, okay, I get it now. You know, it makes sense. Mm, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So, did you either you have any business experience at this time? Like, what was your background coming into this? It sounded like you knew where to go to try to get this at least more refined locally at first before you went on to some full scale manufacturing. You guys kind of knew that there might have been a, a market for. Like, what what's your backgrounds? Yeah, so my background is actually in uh, brand development and design. So I I we had an advantage together with our company Beard King because. Alessia actually worked on the back end. She was a model and an actress and I was on, I'm sorry, she was on the front end and I was on the back end. So we knew like how to market products, how to design uh, the, the packaging, the logos. We knew all the front end stuff that a lot of people don't know or spend a lot of money doing. Um, as far as the manufacturing side, we actually didn't know. And that's one of the things, you know. Right. So we just figured from what we made at home there's got to be somebody that can that can make it look better and make it function better. So that's when we took it to our tailor. But of course, there was further development after that, you know, because she's she can only do so much and, and go so far. 
Um, so that's when your your own drive and your own um, research comes in, and we took it to a factory, and you know, there's a, a process after the the development. Um, so there was to answer your question, there was no official background on manufacturing. Right. But again, to our advantage, the backgrounds that we did have in you know marketing and branding really helped us propel uh, the brand because we knew that we could develop product. We just didn't know how to get there. But with the design, with the front end of what people see um, on social media, on branding, on the website, uh, we knew we had what it takes to get there. Right. I was going to ask, you know, this uh, this place that you guys, not this place, but this advantage that you guys had with knowing how to market, how to brand, how to create a brand, I think is, like you're saying, a big advantage, a big skill set to have because it's what's going to start bringing in the sales, especially uh, later on when you've developed such a full-fledged brand. So w- what are the steps then when you, when you sit down and maybe in your previous experience or especially with uh, starting your own company, what were the steps that you took to, to, you know, make this brand more tangible? Like how do you begin to develop a brand? Um, that's a great question. I think um, one of the first things is you kind of have to ask yourself, you know, going through a marketing and branding branding strategy is, you know, what are you? Now, we didn't come up and say, hey, we want to make a beard related company. It was that we solved a problem and built a brand around that problem. Mm. So we also, as far as the steps and the processes, you know, a lot of people kind of, I think, overlook and skip the visual side of the brands. They just, yeah, I'm going to go get, you know, a, um, a stock image as my logo and, uh, you know, create some messaging and I'm good to go. And you have to really think about um, what you're going to be putting out there in the world. So we, you know, took our time uh, with the branding, with the design, uh, with the entire theme, actually. We, Lord Felix, uh, you know, Queen Alessia, yeah. King Nick, we... Um, address all of our customers as queens and kings and lords and ladies. So it's more than just, you know, a logo um, or just the design of the font. It's the entire package of, you know, the theme, the messaging, the logo, uh, everything combined to create this almost of a character of your brand and the personality behind it. Um, yeah, I thought that was hilarious when you when we first exchanged emails and you were referencing me as Lord Felix. I was like, this is it really stood out, you know, really stood out and really solidified that that brand like you're talking about in my head. And the the question then that I think comes out of this is how do you make sure that you are always staying on brand all the time? Because uh, maybe at this point it's very automatic for you to add in these little uh, you know characteristics to your emails or characteristics to to the website. But do you do anything on a daily basis to make sure that you're not diluting or dive or, or diverting from the the original brand? Yeah, I would say even when we talk to um, you know our staff or anybody involved, we always keep it on brand. You know, even if it's somebody that we talk to every day. Um, like our director of operations, I still call her Queen Sally. We'll never just say, hey, Sally, I need this. Like we'll always, you know, keep that theme rolling. So it's that it makes you feel good. Like you said, you got the email. And so when we talk to people and we address them like that, one of our um, statements is, you know, treat everyone like royalty. And so I feel like we always keep that in the back of our mind when we're talking to suppliers um, all the way down to the customer. So even the suppliers, the vendors, everyone's getting the same treatment. And I think that helps us, again, differentiate ourselves with talking about the brand itself. And, and it's really cool to to get customers' feedbacks and, you know, wives that will send us emails or, or reviews and they will say, you know, my husband, he loves using the bib. He feels like a true king or, um, <laughs> you know, so things like that, that people really embrace it. And uh, it, it only just pushes us forward to continue to grow on that um, on building that character and that personality that our that our company brings. Mm. So did this the, this brand that you that you created did it develop organically over time or do you set out from the beginning hey these are the you know three tenants three pillars that we go by and everything branches off of this like how <clears throat> I guess how formal is that process of creating a brand for for you know an existing business or or a new business It kind of uh, I I would I would say that it was very organic we started off with um, with Instagram with, you know, obviously a brand new account of a brand new business. And because of Nick's marketing background, he was able to create these really funny and engaging memes. Mm-hmm. Um, and people really, really liked it. And uh, we grew very fast. I would say um, our Instagram account is 
I mean, it's fun. It's fun to look at. Um, so but I would I say it was in, an organic, an organic growth. But I think in regards, you were talking um, more about the process of it. You know, when I was doing brand development for other clients, I would say it was very thought out. There was a whole entire process. Uh, my other business was called Kovic. And on there, I had an entire steps one through five process between uh, going through a brand audit. You know, what's your brand about? Where's it been? Where's it going um, through the brand strategy? Then the brand identity is the step three. Brand implementation is where you execute. And then brand manages five. So there is a very methodic process through the branding that we did go through. Now, I do agree with what Alessia was just saying is that with Beard King, again, we didn't this was more of a personal project per se that turned into a brand. So we kind of did a reverse of what I would normally do for clients. So mm -hmm. it was more organic in that sense. But if we were to just start again, I think it would be, we would go through the methodic process of, okay, this is what we need to do here. And, and that's the background right. that we have. So when you look at other brands or businesses, what, what steps do you think out of those, uh, you know, five or so uh, steps in the process that you're listing before, what steps do you think people should spend more time on that you, that you see people missing out on when they, when they have a company that's running already and that you see missing from their, I guess, brand development process? I would say the step three of brand identity. I mean, a lot of people, some people are just straight business oriented. Um, and now with this millennial generation as people buying online, I think to stand out from the crowd, you really need to focus on your brand identity, your brand theme. I mean, you can have a cool strategy and all these numbers and graphs and charts and projections, but at the end of the day, that doesn't bring in traffic and convert always. So focusing on that brand identity um, the visuals, the messaging, and how you deliver um, that personality to the world, I think is what a lot of entrepreneurs should focus on. Um, and if you can't do it yourself, that's okay. I mean, you can hire um, you know, designers to do that for you. But I think that's probably one key element that people should really focus on. And you can see the big brands that, that really set themselves apart because they focus and they spend a lot of money doing that. Mm. And is there a way to test to see if you do have a strong uh, brand or a uh, brand identity or not, or whether you should be working on it more or not? Man, that's actually a really good question because see, we, Lacey and I both, and with our backgrounds, we both have kind of that art eye background. Mm -hmm. So I feel like it's, it's a matter of taste at that point, right. but to actually gauge and test it. That's actually a really good question. I'm not really sure. Yeah, so maybe for you guys, it, just because you have that experience already or that, that, that those skills already, it just feels more very natural for you to be able to know if you have a strong brand identity or not. Correct. Yeah, I would agree. So, But it, it's also more than the visual, I guess. I can tap into the experience of what you feel. Like when you get the package in the mail, let's say, and you, want, you open it up and whatever messaging is displayed there, and it's a feeling that it gives you, I think – that's probably the gauge that you can see if the brand is 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 doing a good job on that. Because if you just get, you know, I'll get packages in the mail and it's like a clear bag and it's just the product by itself. And I'm like, OK, I mean, you know, you, you have this emotional attachment to a product per se. But when you go through the brand experience from the email messaging mm -hmm. to the checkout pro or I'm sorry, the checkout process and the site and then the messaging, um, the retarget marketing and then you get the product. So all those elements, I think, are very important through the entire process. So. Right. And also listening to your audience, you know, listening to what people have to say mm -hmm. about what you have already delivered. Um, really, that's how we grow. You know, we just listen to our customers and our feedback to see wh what we're doing right. And um, and we also learn from our from what our competitors are doing right. Because because that's how we that's how you grow. Right. I, I don't want to know what you're doing wrong. I want to know what you're doing right so that I can do it better. Um, so just listening and just being aware of of your surroundings, sur surroundings and your feedback. Yeah, I think that's a good point. If you're able to live a life essentially in your customer's shoes and see what it's like to for them to go through the process of visiting your store for the first time, seeing those ads, 
ordering the product, what's that process like, and getting the package, unboxing their, the package. I think the entire process, uh, you either have to be so tied to your customers that you can kind of visualize all those points and then be able to identify what's good and what's, what's what needs to be fixed. Or you just have to, like you're saying, you have to ask your customers, talk to your customers about all of these steps along the way so you can identify you know, what areas need to be improved on. And I think that all goes back to having a strong brand identity or not. If you, if you find that no one cares about the packaging or no one, no one's uh, super delighted when they get a package from, from you, then that's probably a sign that you need to improve on the identity, especially at that point. Um, so yeah, let's, talk, let's talk about the very beginning now. We'll go back to kind of the beginning stages. So you have uh, the prototype done. You've been working with a local tailor to refine the product. Uh, at what point did you realize, okay, now it's ready to start going into more large-scale manufacturing, getting it done, uh, or, or were you still continuing to work with this, uh, this tailor when you were creating the first, I guess, run of products? So we actually sat on the idea for almost four to five months, and I, I remember calling Alessia, and I saw this product, the Philips Norelco oh, right. beard right. trimmer, um, that tried to market the same problem. I'm sorry, the solving the same problem, but their solution was a trimmer that had a vacuum on it. So I'm like, mm. oh man, that's actually a great idea. But sometimes solving a simple problem with a complex solution is actually not the best way to do it. Mm-hmm. And so we purchased the product, the, the trimmer, tried it out, tested it, did a little video. Really scared, by the way, because we were thinking this is the end. Yeah, of we're the like, well, we didn't, by that point, it wasn't even developed yet. We're right. like, oh, well, that idea is done. Let's move on. Mm-hmm. So we sat on it, purchased it, tested it out. You know, it maybe caught 15, 20% of the hair, yeah. but the rest was all over the sink. Right. It was it was honestly more of a mess because now you had to clean out the trimmer. And it's funny because last night in my Uber, my Uber, I was just talking to the driver about our product. And he's like, yeah, I bought this vacuum uh, <laughs> trimmer and it got like doesn't work. And I'm like, here right. we go. So And it goes back to what I just mentioned of listening to your audience. We would look at the reviews on this trimmer with this vacuum thing and everybody would say the same. You know, now it's, it's creating more of a problem because now mm. I have to open this tiny compartment and brush the hairs out and clean it and it's just it was just more of a mess so it goes back to listening to the people that can relate to the problem and how do you solve that problem without being overly complicated yeah and so that's when we decided you know talking about scaling it or moving forward we went with a local manufacturer because clearly our little italian lady couldn't sew up you know (laughs) a thousand bibs at a time so um you know we we did it very cautiously where we didn't go to, you know, overseas and start investing a lot of money because we didn't even, you know, have the money to do so. So we had to start with very small batches. Our margins were terrible. Yeah. And you have to keep in mind, this product had never been done before. So we didn't know, we didn't actually know how it was going to do, you know, we, yeah, we, we had no idea, no idea. So we had to be very cautious and uh, very conservative with, with our, with the money that we spent, because first of all, we didn't have that much money to invest in the product development yeah we use our own personal uh funding which wasn't much at all to do this right and so yeah so we we took it to the local manufacturer did maybe like you know 100 200 at a time which of course that's laughable now looking back um you know two years ago but at the same time you have to go through those steps so again the margins were terrible but we knew to test the product we needed to to do this we needed to just put it out there and so we did. And so we started very small. Um, this was, was it two, the end of 2014? Or? Yeah, the end of 2014. So it was gearing up to the holiday season. Yeah. And, and, it, and it did okay. I mean, you know, we didn't know anything about running a Shopify store or anything like that. So again, that's why our first year was 2015. Um, you said 100 to, 100 to 200 products at a time. Were you like, how were you actively selling these? Like, how were you able to get those very first sales from the, the initial production run? Yeah, it was well. First, of course, friends and family. We you know pushed it out to them, and you know they they showed support. Um, but I would say Instagram really helped us. Where with our backgrounds of design and all that, we can do everything in house. So we were just creating these hilarious memes. Um, which were just kind of spreading and going viral uh, online. Even some other uh, indirect competitors and some competitors were actually taking our memes and just, you know, taking and making them their own. But at that point, we were just so young. We're like, hey, share with everybody. We got we yeah. got to get this out there. Um, 
the great thing about Instagram is, you know, we were creating these memes and people were stealing our and are stealing our memes. But it, the, I guess the whole point of how Instagram is so great for for the for our business at the beginning was because we were getting that traffic to our website to get those first few sales and get that feedback that we needed to, you know, we needed to know, is this a product that you actually mm-hmm. want to buy and want to use? So we used that to our advantage. You know, people were stealing our our memes and ideas on Instagram, but it was driving traffic back to us, which eventually got us the first few sales and we were able to, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. find out, do you really want to buy this? Okay. So the steps here were that you guys had this initial production run already and you were growing the Instagram at the same time uh, by p- producing these memes, anything that uh, other photos that were, were going viral, getting more shares, getting more attention and traffic to your Instagram profile, which then leads to the traffic to your store. And then that's how you're able to understand, is there a market for this or not be by by just looking at uh, the the sales or were you finding other ways to to learn from the customers? I would say both, but a key point in this kind of process of memes and creating, engaging, and seeing if this is even a viable product was um, in the month of May of 2015. And this is actually something we can talk about as far as Shark Tank leading up to Shark Tank. But our we created a video. And so once we kind of fa- not phased out of visual um, pictures and Instagram, we also realized the next platform is Facebook. And this is when Facebook, and it's obviously been around forever, but video really started mm-hmm. to, to kick in. I mean, literally Facebook nowadays is like my newsfeed. I don't even watch the TV. I just go on Facebook and I just scroll through hundreds of videos. And so especially when they added that autoplay. And so a key point for us was uh, in May of 2015, uh, one of our first video that we ever made in-house completely went viral. I think it was Unilad or Nine Gag, one of those huge Facebook accounts that has you know thirty really million expensive. followers. It went viral. So as soon as they picked it up, every account started picking it up. And we did in the month of May, I think it was eighty thousand dollars in sales. We were like, wait, what? We just month. went. We just went from like. And, the and, month before, ten thousand in sales to eighty thousand. Right. We were like, "What?" And the we heck? could have done a larger number. We just didn't. Again, being so conservative with our numbers in production, we didn't have enough inventory. So, yeah. it was eighty thousand was actually a conservative number because it would have been much more mm-hmm. if we would have had mm-hmm. the proper inventory. So, mm-hmm. so, how, so, how did you? Um, so, these viral videos that you were posting, or at least the one that took off, that generated eighty thousand uh, dollars in that month of May. Was it a just a funny video? How was it tied back to your product? How did you actually get the people that were watching the products back to the site? Like, was there just some kind of watermark? Like, what was the the method for for I guess the branding though that content? It was a fifteen second video of the bib being of the beard bib being in use, and we this video we did ourselves. We shot it ourselves. We produced it ourselves. Directed it ourselves. It took very little. Um, I mean, like we spent what, maybe like $500 on it in Nick's mother's bathroom. (laughs) Um, It was, I mean, it was very low budget, but it told the story and it gave you an immediate idea of what the product is. So 15 seconds, I mean, that's nothing. And it was just, it it was just so quick and so engaging and so funny. And that's. um, And I think it's because to to add on to that is because no one's seen the product before. Right. You know, you're talking about. A, a, a store and a, and a company that not is non-existent and has this product that's so unique and that's that's hard for a lot of these companies that have these unique products but they don't know how to get it out there so when we saw that hit it was because the world saw oh here's this crazy cool invention and it was the product it wasn't like we created this funny storyline video mm-hmm. it was literally just the product being demo used, right yeah being used and that's kind of really what propelled uh, the sales from there. And then that put us at a whole new plateau and also understanding of what we probably should focus on, which right. was video and Facebook. So super successful month for you guys, $80,000 in sales. You said the previous month only the 10000 in sales. So obviously a big jump. Like, What were you guys freaking out at the time? Like, How did you handle the, such a big jump in sales all of a sudden? Well, prior to, uh, so this happened in May, that really exciting month of $80,000. But gearing up to that, we were actually getting ready to film Shark Tank in June. So we had auditioned in January. And um, so you can, I mean, being on Shark Tank is a whole nother 
you know, just language. It's, there's so much, so many things that needs, that needs to be done and accomplished prior to you actually filming. So we were really, really busy, not only getting ready for Shark Tank, but uh, having enough inventory. So uh, it, that was, it was a blessing and a curse because you have, you go from, you know, no funding, uh, you get a few thousand dollars in sales a month, which is not bad. And then you jump to, you know, a growth of, of that, that peak you're like, okay, what do we do now? And so one of the issues we had was meeting the demand and, ta- and, and circling back to, you know, listening to customers and customer service. You know, we were, we were a team of like two to three people. We didn't have any knowledge of what was to come next. And so we had literally, or we went to the container store, we bought racks, um, <laughs> our entire, we were fulfilling out of our one bedroom apartment <laughs> on our own. I think we had, um, we had like a cleaning lady come help us. We had uh, a college student that lived here come help us. I mean, it was it was terrible, but at the same time, it was a blessing and a curse. I mean, we were happy that this this was happening to us and the business was taking off. But I think a lot of entrepreneurs can can relate to the struggle of okay, now this is real. Um, you know, it's not you. Can, you don't just make money and sit back. You actually have to execute now. So I think um, being on that back order status was a huge risk for us. And so we couldn't, we, we had this demand and we couldn't meet, um, we couldn't meet the demand because we didn't have the inventory. So that was a huge learning process for us um, to try to meet that demand and try to keep right. up with sales. And, and circling back, that was around the time of going into Shark Tank. So that was. The, stress, the stress level was. Yeah, so not only going through the Shark Tank or getting prepared to go through the Shark Tank process, going viral on Facebook, not having enough inventory to meet the demand. Customers were angry. Like we had so much to juggle. We were like, okay, we went from oh, this idea. We're not sure. And then it blows up and we're like, oh my God, what do we do now? Right. To, you know, thinking we got to do something about this or this is going to blow up in our face. Right. Mm-hmm. So how did you get under control then? Because the sales are going through the roof way faster than you're able to have the infrastructure, the process set up to handle the sales. Like you're saying, your entire one bedroom apartment was just packed full of orders. You had random people coming over to help you uh, pack everything, ship everything out. What did you, what steps did you take to, to uh, eventually be able to get a handle on, on this kind of growth? Well, I think for any entrepreneur moving through any level of steps of growing, it forces you to figure out what you need to do next, right? So this was our tipping point of now we need to go to the next level. So we were basically forced to learn, well, what do we do? We, I know using Shopify, there's a company called Shipwire that does fulfillment, but we felt like we weren't ready to maybe just start sending off inventory with, you know, we don't even know where it's going. It's not local. We can't touch it. So we actually ended up working with a local fulfillment center. And that was like a blessing. We were like, please get this out of our house. I mean, Uh, One interesting thing, obviously, we're husband and wife, we work together, we're partners. But the problem is when you work from home, it starts to creep into undoubtedly your personal life. Mm -hmm. And that becomes a problem when you can't separate work from home. And so that was one of another struggle that we had is like, how do we separate this? This is affecting our personal lives. And so we had to figure out that to not only help the business, because if if the parents or the king and queen of the business aren't healthy and doing good, then the entire business fails. So mm-hmm. we figured that out. The fulfillment center really helped us, um, you know, obviously get all the inventory out and pump out the order so we can get back to focusing on how we even got here, which right. was creating content, videos, uh, marketing. Like that's what we're good at. And we're not good at fulfilling and, and doing all those things. And we realized that, but we did it for so long that it drained us. Like, I mean, it was, yeah, it was, we were just wearing too many hats, you know, and I feel it's important for entrepreneurs to understand when when it's too much, when it's become the time to delegate some tasks or, you know, inventory can't stay in my one bedroom apartment. It needs to go to a fulfillment center. I can't be driving back and forth to the post office, you know, all day long for six hours back and forth. I need to find a better way, you know, because Things like that is what keeps you behind and doesn't allow I, you to do the things that you're good at. Yeah, you're- but I think wearing all those hats as an entrepreneur is actually great. I think everybody should literally start from, you know, the janitor mopping the floors all the way up to the president. So you understand everybody's role. And right. that's what I was saying. It forced us 
to learn those roles. So now we know, okay, this is what a fulfillment center does. This is great. And we can kind of gauge what they're working on and what they can do because we've already fulfilled ourselves. So we know what needs to be done and so on and so forth. Yeah, I think that that's, uh, you guys have definitely made the right moves and worked way smarter by outsourcing these aspects of your business. I think there's this uh, mentality, though, with a lot of entrepreneurs where they say, I'm just going to suck it up and just do it. And like you're saying, you might want to do that at first just so that you can understand how everything works from point A to the, to, to the delivery to the, to the end customer. So how do you, I guess, balance that? Like, how do you know when you should really be outsourcing something or delegating something versus handling it yourself nowadays, especially when there's the business is larger and then you have more people working for you? That's a good question. Actually, one of my mentors gave me a book um, called The One Minute Manager Meets the Monkey. And, you know, you were asking about how do you how do you figure out, okay, now's the time to kind of start delegating these tasks. And the problem is when you say, I'm going to suck it up and I'm just going to do it all myself. Those are kind of what the monkeys are that are on your back. And those are like the next moves that need to get done. And so when you have too many monkeys on your back, your days just consist of doing everybody else's work or all those hats or all those monkeys that you could be passing off to other people. And so we've kind of implement implemented that into our process. If, if it's not a huge task, that's, you know, not going to make or lose us too much money if we make a mistake, then it's okay to delegate that task. Right. You know, whether it's day-to-day emails or even social media where we have people working for us um, or even now even video production that we used to do in-house. We realize that, you know, the term, it, it, it takes money to make money and you should obviously reinvest that. It, it's so true because mm-hmm. if you try to do everything yourself, there's going to be a cap on your scalability. And not every, like even with our product, we don't think that this is just some trending product because beards are so in right now. Um, but if it is a product that you have that is trending, well, you need to get to the market fast, capture all that you can. And if you're sitting there doing every task or all those monkeys, like I mentioned in that book, then you're not going to have time to scale. Right. Mm, makes sense. So yeah, let's talk a little bit about uh, the Shark Tank appearance that, that you guys were referencing earlier. Uh, you went into the show, uh, I think, believe seeking $100,000 for 20% equity in the company. So at this time, your business was around, what, maybe six months of of, uh, being in business by the time that you started, uh, I guess, preparing for Shark Tank? Like, how did that happen? Like, how were you able to, to, I guess, picked as a potential uh, company to come on Shark Tank? So two months into, we we officially opened our doors uh, October 10th of 2014. So two months into our business journey, we found out that there was uh, an open call for Shark Tank in the Miami at, in Miami at the Miami Beach Convention Center. So it was just one of those things that it was meant to be, you know, because we had been huge fans of the show. And now having this product, we knew that it was we needed to be we really wanted to be on Shark Tank. So mm-hmm. um, it just kind of all happened organically. And we went to the audition in January of 2015. Um, and we got the call back. And like I was mentioning earlier, it's a very lengthy, lengthy, lengthy process. So from audition in January, we actually ended up filming in June and we had that really successful month in May, um, of our, how much was it? $80,000 in, in the yeah. month. Of May. Um, so we filmed in June and, um, I, I guess because we were so new and we didn't really have a whole lot of background, Going into the tank. I actually remember seeing this episode very vaguely because I'm a big fan of the show as well. And there's a lot of, I guess, talk about your content creation as the key for the growth of your business. And, you know, obviously the month before in May, uh, the, the $80,000 in sales was really attributed to the videos that you had created. So was this a big uh, selling point that you guys knew you wanted to go in with? And when you went, when you went to pitch on the show to talk about the, the content, the content marketing essentially that you guys were doing? Absolutely. And as Alessia mentioned, you know, we were so new in business that even running a business ourselves, we were so new, let alone the business that we had presented to them. So we knew going in there that if you go to the Shark Tank and you try to act like, you know, all these numbers and graphs and projections, I mean, they're going to rip you a new one. So we were like, mm-hmm. let's go in with what we're good at, which you just mentioned is, is content creation. And I remember Mark Cuban, when he went out, he was like, You know, if you guys would have came in here and told me you have like X, Y, Z content lined up and this next idea, like I would have been interested, but you didn't tell me that. So I was a little thrown off by that. I don't know if you recall him saying that, but 
I just was like, okay, well, I don't really, I get what he's saying. Um, but we didn't really have a rebuttal for that, but it actually stuck with us. So now every time we think of that next video or idea, we're like, Oh, remember what Mark Cuban said, we got to keep pushing. And so that's also a key element is consistency because it's not about just creating one video, one meme, one post, and then like, you know, making it go viral and then you get a bunch. No, it's about constantly having those waves come in and crash and then you got to continue them. Awesome. Yeah. So you guys did have success in the tank, right? What, what ended up happening? What was the deal that you ended up walking away with on the show? So we actually, as you mentioned, it was a hundred thousand dollars for 20%. And of course it's TV, it's entertainment. So not always what happens on air is what happens during due diligence. Mm -hmm. And so there was a gap of a few months that go through due diligence. And within that month, that was towards the end of the year, Q4. And our product is a great gift. So we exploded with sales. And we really actually, when we pitched in the tank, the deal that Lori got, I mean, it was actually you know great for her and decent for us. It was a little high with the equity stake, but we really needed the money. Like at that point, you know, talking about the May, um, the May spike we had with the eighty thousand. Even though you had that capital, we still needed to buy more inventory for the holidays, but we just didn't have capital to do so. And so we uh, answering the question about what was the deal that actually came to fruition. Well, there wasn't a deal that came to fruition because we grew so much mm. that financially the deal at a hundred thousand dollars for forty percent didn't make any sense. Like. We had more cash tied into inventory and in the bank, you know, times three or four to not even, you know, need that deal. So right. we, we negotiated, went back and forth and we okay. respectively, we love Lori, but we ended up both just walking away from the deal. Right. And it's important to clarify that uh, the how we grew and when we grew was prior to airing. Mm -hmm. uh, so it's not like the show. I mean, obviously, the show was a huge platform and sales were obviously great when we did air, which was in January of 2016. Um, yeah. But between June of 2015 and January of 2016, there's, you know, six, a six month gap. And that's when we grew prior to airing. So when it came down to signing that the dotted line in, in January prior to airing, it just didn't really make sense. Mm, makes sense. Yeah, I've heard of this happening a lot too. That that a good portion of deals after the the show's airing after the Shark Tank uh, don't end up actually happening. But I've never heard of a case like you guys where you didn't need the money anymore because of such a uh, hyper growth. So I think that's uh, the best kind of terms to leave with when you decide not to go with the deals because you no longer need it. Um, so let, let's talk about the content piece then, because it sounds like that's what led to your success early on, and it sounds like that's what's still continuing uh, to help you guys. Guys with, with your sales and success. So the, the the Facebook video virality that that you guys encountered was this was there a follow up to it? Like were you able to continue to churn out these videos that had that same kind of success? And well, I see before we get there, like how many views are we talking about at this time? That's a great question because when people heard us on Shark Tank talk about you know we had over twenty or thirty million views. If you look on YouTube, a lot of people will try to like call us out like oh you know, where are those views? You guys lied. You guys are liars. But we're like, guys, there's more than YouTube. We're talking mm. Facebook. Like if you go on Unilad's Facebook, um, it's, they post so much stuff, you'll, you won't be able to find it in their content. But we have all the links and we repost those links. But with Unilad, I believe just on Unilad, Unilad alone, I think it had close to 20 million views just on Unilad. Wow. So one of the main Facebook accounts was Unilad. And that video, our first one had over 27 million views and 80,000 comments. So you wow. can imagine the traction and communication that was happening. That's just one of, I think, over 20 different Facebook accounts that all have huge followings and huge reaches that reposted that video. Obviously, lots of success with this, and I think I feel like this, literally, if you can get something like a video, a product video especially, to go viral, like you have yourself the very beginnings of a, of a successful business just because there's so much attention and traffic for you. Now, when you go back to creating content, are there kind of like uh, formulas or like keys or like necessary elements of a video that you make sure are in this video to try to replicate this kind of success again? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that everybody has, has their own style and I feel like ours, it's humor because our product is, it's funny. 
um, we we cr- we just try to stick to what we know and the fact that it's we want to create that laughter, that humor. Who doesn't want to laugh, right? Mm. So we just we just keep it funny. That's our secret sauce. <laughs> but to to even drill down even further for people that are interested, I think that also keeping it short. You know, there's so much noise on social media. I mean, and even with Facebook, I'll be sitting you know, in bed or, or about to go to sleep and scrolling through videos in the morning and I don't listen to any audio. So that first two seconds has to be very engaging. And I will say to try to replicate that with our product does get difficult because our product popped off and was so unique that when someone first saw it, you know, the audience is like, what is that? They're engaged. So over time, I will say that there, there will be a decline in that because the audience will get overexhausted as the product gets out in the world. Um, so to answer or to elaborate on what Lacey has said, yeah, we try to stick to humor because people do enjoy laughing. You know, uh, even at one of our um, our friends and affiliates, I think it's uh, Squatty Potty and Poopery. Mm. I mean, these are products that aren't saving the world, but in essence, they kind of are like Squatty Potty their recent video was like one of the most watched videos ever. And it was, it was hilarious. But prior to that, one of the issues they brought up was they tried to go from the medical standpoint, like you need this product, like very, uh, 1999. But when they added humor elements to their videos, that's what made them go viral. Cause it's shareable. People don't want to share a product that, you know, it's not fun. And I think, you know, cause some people that are listening to this podcast might not have a product that you know, is glamorous or fun to share. So they have to think of creative ways of how can they, um, you know, make it fun. And, and an, an example of that, another person in, in Shark Tank alumni and friend that we talked to was um, Fiberfix. They were trying to figure out ways, um, you know, because how glamorous is Fiberfix tape? I mean, it's just really tape, right? But they came out with a viral video to launch a car off of a cliff with a roll cage the first variable was duct tape, and of course it fell apart. But with fiber fix, it all stayed together. Right. But see how they took that simple, mm. you know, product and made it fun and like entertaining to watch. You have to entertain people. I think is kind of that secret sauce, right. really. And especially right nowadays with social media, uh, keeping it short, you know, because nobody really has the time to sit there and watch maybe a minute video or a thirty second video. But if you find a creative way to um, to make it fun and shareable, I think I think people are more prone to wanting to share when it's when it's got a, an aspect um, of of laughter. You know, when you're creating when you're creating a moment. Yeah, I think what it comes down to is that people don't want to seem boring to their friends, so they're not going to share a very sterile looking video. They want to share something that will make their friends be entertained or laugh. And I think that you hit on a, a hit on a very important point, which is that you need to have those elements in there. Otherwise it's not going to be something that they would enjoy sharing themselves. Um, and when you, when you, uh, I guess I think what you're saying about how previously about how Mark Cuban made that comment about what's next for you guys. Do you have a pretty extensive, I guess, content calendar? Like how do you plan and prepare? for all of the the content that you you are creating so we try to stay on the fly you know with whatever trend might be in uh, or a funny category or topic that's happening but at the same time you can't just go off of uh, what's trending so yes we do plan ahead obviously any big calendar holidays halloween uh, christmas whatever it might be we, we try to plan ahead for those actually one of the recent ones with halloween uh, coming up, we did a scary, hairy sink where the sink, um, it almost looked like a pumpkin, I guess, but yeah. all the hair uh, trimmings that fell in the sink created the shape of like a jack-o'-lantern. So creative little things like that we do try to plan ahead of time because um, if not, you're just going to kind of run out and just have to post generic stuff. So we do we- – And we try to be original and create our own content as opposed to just – grabbing a picture off of the internet and reposting it. We tried to um, keep it original. Mm. Well, well, I guess what, what's the breakdown then? Because, you know, obviously you can't be creating your own content every single day and posting it. Um, so you probably do have to share other things that you find. Is there a certain breakdown that works well for you guys between original content and sharing what's, what's already out there? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, if you're trying to, you know, grow a community, 
it's definitely key to share because we have a lot of people messaging us and want to get shout outs and have their picture featured. So we definitely have a nice balance and ratio of um, sharing community photos, lifestyle photos around that brand or topic and not advertising too much. If you look at our feed, you don't you might not see a lot of product like that we're advertising because not everybody it depends on the platform like we talked about facebook and video and instagram and images but um we try not to advertise too much as far as uh the, of the content it's it's more of the, around the lifestyle mm, makes sense so one thing that you you mentioned uh, in the pre-interview notes or pre pre-interview question was uh, that you you said that ideas are cheap and execution is everything and I think this, uh, I guess, concept of a type of entrepreneur that's just the idea guy is often kind of shunned or shot down. Were you guys ever, would you guys ever consider yourselves, you know, the idea person or only the idea person at any point before you start executing? Yeah, I would say so because we had to go through that learning experience. Like we have so many ideas like, like most people do. And even when friends now that will say, Hey, I have this really cool idea. And they obviously saw our success. So I'm like, that's awesome, man. But you know, put the tires in the rubber to the road and just go for it. But most people stop there because, you know, they don't want to go through the process and it's, you know, it takes a toll for sure, you know, mentally, physically, but that's why it's true that ideas, you know, they're cheap and execution is literally everything because it's not all about having this amazing idea and amazing marketing. It's about, can you execute? Will will you wake up every day and put in the work um, to execute and slowly chip away at that sculpture that you're trying to create or that business model? Right. And not be scared to fail, you know, because it's, I, be, I believe it's human nature to just sometimes when you're, you're, you don't know the outcome of something, you, you become scared of taking action. But um, being an entrepreneur kind of goes against that. You have to jump. You have to make a move. You have to make it happen because otherwise you'll just sit on the idea or on your concept or on your product just because you're scared. Yeah, that makes sense. So nowadays, if someone out there is has a product idea or a content idea, uh, or maybe if you guys have a product idea or content idea, what do you do to make sure you get as fast as possible from just the idea phase into execution mode as fast as possible? Yeah, I think once you kind of go through the process of you know whether you're using a project management system, you can kind of, uh, once you pave those paths, at, whether it's manufacturing or marking, you can document all that and then run that new idea or concept through that same pipeline over and over again uh, I know some of the other entrepreneurs that uh, we listen to on the podcast, they test it on certain platforms like Amazon. Uh, you know, we kind of just listen to our customers, like she said, run it through the process of what we have going on um, and, you know, test it. Start small. You know, we never we never get a new product development and just try to buy so much inventory because that's a huge risk and you're risking your capital because, once that money's spent, if that product doesn't sell, well, that that you can might as well throw that money away. So always start small and test it in little small batches. Yeah. Mm, so if you were to start all, start all over and you had some new idea, some other idea, uh, what would you do then? Like, what were the first steps that you would take to make sure that you weren't just kind of you know waiting around? Because it sounded like you actually did go through that of sitting on the idea for a bit. If you were to go back and kind of give yourself some more of a kick in the butt to move faster, what do you think that you would have spent your time doing to make sure you're executing? Hmm. That's a good question. That is a good question. I would say planning. Yeah. You know, a lot of like how we talked about how this business grew organically and a lot of people just say that, but this literally grew organically. So I would say it's good to have that ratio going back to of having a plan and really going through those those branding steps first. Um, also executing, uh, you know, even a business plan. Even when we started this business, we didn't have a business plan. But I think as you kind of grow and you learn mar- the different markets, um, you should you should have a plan. So again, we didn't research, you know, beard market and all this in the beginning. But now looking back and moving forward, we are. So I would say that's the difference moving forward. Or if we had to start all over again, is really planning to seize that opportunity to execute is what we would do different. Right, and and also staying organized so that uh, you can you can command certain tasks to other people and having that plan, like Nick just mentioned, because um, I feel like a lot of times when you're first starting off, you have, you're again, you're wearing so many hats 
you don't have a plan, you, you're not organized, and then you have to redo it all over again to teach somebody else. So if you just create that framework, um, you have a better a better chance of just doing things faster and just going at it. I, I, I guess at a quicker pace. Yeah, I think I think uh, when I when when I ask people, you know, how do you make sure that you're executing, and what do you find that maybe you waste too much time on? They do actually say that planning is what they waste a lot of time on. But what you're saying, I think, is different than this, and what you're what you, both of you are saying, I think, is different than spending too much time planning. What you're getting at, I believe, is that you want to plan and organize enough so that you don't have to. St- spend all this time stopping and thinking about your next step just so that you can always be knowing what to do next and always hitting these key points. So I think that's a great point about making sure you are planning, making sure you're organized so that you don't lose the momentum and you know exactly where to go next. So I think that's that's a great point. Um, So, you know, two years of business now, uh, you said you started in late 2014. uh, It's now late in 2016. Uh, Can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today? Like how much has it grown? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we're looking at projecting well over, uh, you know, seven figures this year. The first year we did a little under that. Uh, another platform we just launched on and should touch base on today is is Amazon. And we didn't go on Amazon for the longest time. And it was because I think this is important for especially people on Shopify is building that audience to retarget to, to acquire a customer sometimes is expensive. So when you go on Amazon, that's Amazon's customer. And that's fine because I'm actually a shopper on Amazon myself, but starting up our own store, we wanted to acquire those customers, get those email addresses to be able to remarket back mm-hmm. to them. Um, so now that we're on Amazon, after two years, we, our product is solid. We knew that the reviews would be good. I mean, now it's exploded even more. So we'll have to, you'll have to wait and see at the end of this year how we do. But I think with Amazon, we're going to do um, great. Yeah, so Amazon is a new channel for you guys. Is it? Are you saying that you want to be able to capture those customers eventually? Like, how how do you tie Amazon back into, I guess, your 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 business, your own store? I would say back to the the topic of messaging, packaging, yeah. uh, the branding side, because that's how you can get people to Google and search. Mm-hmm. Now, one thing I do want to bring up: why we even got on Amazon, besides just opening up a new channel was infringers. And this is one thing that Lori said. She's like, you guys are awesome. This product is cool. But as soon as you hit the market, you're going to get copied. And luckily, prior to Shark Tank airing, we you know kind of flooded the market. But people exploited us on Amazon because we weren't on there. And mm-hmm. so we held off as long as we could. We're like, we're not getting on Amazon. We're not getting, and we had to. And if you, Felix, were to go look on Amazon right now, there's at least 15 to 20 like infringers copying our products. Some even steal our images. Yeah, not only our product, but they steal our images and they'll and they, just they copy Photoshop and paste a, a different phase or a different sync or whatever. But it is it is just incredible what people will actually do to, you know, to just kind of steal your your market and your idea and your content. Um, so there's yet another challenge. We're talking about all the different phases here. Right. And the next phase that we're dealing with now is the legal side. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. products patent pending. And unfortunately, Amazon, you know, they'll they'll do a decent job, but it's a wide open market like the wild, wild west. I mean, and until you go through the process of getting on Amazon, which is actually very difficult. And we were like, how are these people so easily copying us? And it's because the sellers were already ungated. They were already on Amazon, and then they're just in the business mm-hmm. to steal these product ideas that are that are hot, like ours. And, and they're undercut just, you with pricing. And of course, if you look, you know, ours is twenty nine ninety nine. Everyone else is like nine ninety nine, nineteen ninety nine. They're trying to just skim off the top from all of our marketing efforts that we talked about today, and all this virality. They're just people are going to Amazon. Like I do this all the time. If I find a cool product, I actually go to Amazon just to add it to my car to remember to look at it later. But that's what people are thinking. They're buying our product and they're not. So it's a, I'm sure I speak for a lot of entrepreneurs that are listening that they go through these same struggles that we're going through. Yeah, it's definitely the the gift and the curse of, of that kind of success is now you have all this attention, all of these other businesses that see 
I guess you can call them businesses, all these other copycasts that see your success and want to find essentially use what you've done to shortcut them towards their own sales. So I think that's an interesting point that you're saying that you went onto these marketplaces. In your case, it was Amazon, but it could be any other marketplace or anybody else because there were copycats that were already selling the products and you weren't there to truly represent the brand as the, the originators of the product. Uh, but when you're entering a marketplace that has already has all these copycats, you're kind of like entering a, a battlefield that already has some entrenched you know, people in there, even though you are the rightful you know, owners of that product, you're still entering a battlefield that has all these people already selling, probably already has reviews and you know, they already have sales rankings and everything. How do you even begin to take that kind of market share back uh, when you are faced with so many copycats and you're entering it, I guess, a little bit later than them? Absolutely. I, I think the messaging that you bring, uh, it's all about the marketing and how we present our product and and what we're trying to tell with, with the products that we do put out there. So I think it goes back to the messaging and how you market um, not only your product, but the, the messaging within mm-hmm. your, your store. But fighting that uphill battle that you were just mentioning uh, it started off to clarify as only one or two copycats. Um, and I think one of them was Darwin's grooming. And so they're they're put on warning. They've known they've been around. They were one of the first. And I think just recently, um, you know, timestamping how this all happened was especially gearing up for Q4 of 2016, this holiday season. That's when the infestation just took over. So to answer your question, it wasn't as hard as an uphill battle because we were already planning on getting on Amazon. We were just waiting to pull the trigger. And so I actually think based off of the numbers and speaking to some of our account managers, we're already taking that majority market share back. I think we actually are going to be are already the number one in that category because we did create that category. It wasn't like um, this category of beard bibs existed. So I think people are finding that we are, but they're still like you said, like it's entering an entrenched battle where there's these, you know, little warriors all over that are still, you know, stabbing us and we're getting, we're taking some of the shots. Um, but eventually once the IP fully kicks in, I mean, we'll be able to fully wipe them out. But in the meantime, we are fighting back with Amazon ad placements. Alessia mentioned the way our uh, content is presented, our imagery. Uh, you know, if you compare some of these other copycats. I mean, the imagery is just so low budget and that's fine, but we're so far ahead of them because we've been doing this for so long that they're actually just replicating all the old mistakes we made. Mm, yeah, I think that that's uh, it sounds like a two prong approach for you guys where it's uh, the legal side. And but I think what Alicia is saying is, is very important, too, because I think when you resort to legal measures, you almost have to be like um, very active. You have to be like a sharpshooter and find all these different people that you need to go after. But when you have really strong branding, it makes your the company just so defensible because the branding itself just becomes so pervasive that you don't have to go out and search for all these people to take down so much because they all the customers out there that are already shopping around are already, I guess, impact already know about your brand. I think both approaches make a lot of sense. And, and I think a lot of times people underlook or, or overlook that is uh, the branding side, making sure you have a strong brand. And that's probably the best way to protect yourself from a lot of these copycats. Um, so obviously lots of success for you guys coming up on, or I guess now, by now, the holiday shopping season. What, what else are you guys doing to to plan and prepare for for the this uh, holiday shopping season? So we've actually, over the, over the course of the past four or five months, as we we're talking about developing new products, you know, and not not just being a one-off product company. Is we're relaunching uh, some of our body wash, beard oils. We have uh, dog tag king combs. We call them. We have a new king capsule coming out. Uh, we have a lot of these residual income products that are going to be surrounded by the flagship because still the flagship, the beard bib, is the number one. But going back to talking about branding, like. One of our body washes, it's an all black bottle. You can visual a very sleek apple looking bottle, black on black, and it's called Knight, but it's spelled K-N-I-G-H-T, like a royal knight. Um, the other one's called Imperial, and the third name, we're still uh, <laughs> wrapping that up right now. But again, that kind of all plays off of the the branding that we talked about. Awesome. So after, I guess, what, what do you want to see your 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 brand, I guess, after this holiday shopping season? Do you, do you plan on just adding more products to the product line or where do you want to see uh, the Beard King go? 
Uh, well, I, I think after the holiday season, what we want to focus on is maybe getting um, on some larger retail retail spaces. We haven't done that yet. We're only online and on Amazon. So we haven't really touched that. We haven't explored that that monster yet. And I, and I also think exploring worldwide. We actually have customers all over the world, but you know, due to only having distribution, you know, in the States, I think that there's this problem is so universal all over the world. I mean, and especially countries like uh, even Dubai, let's say that there's a lot of men all have facial hair there. There's a market all over the world for this. So I think the future for Beard King is pioneering and, and piercing through with that flagship product while developing the new products along with that, but then going worldwide because we do have sales worldwide, but it's by no means at a large scale like it is in the United States. Mm, makes sense. Thanks so much again for your time, Nick and Lacia. So thebeardking.com is the website. Anywhere else you recommend a listeners check out, they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Check out our Instagram, our Facebook, our Twitter. We're very, very active on all social media platforms and we're, we'll keep you entertained. We'll keep you laughing. That's for sure. Yep. Look out for our new YouTube channel development and all these new videos coming out. You guys are going to love them. Cool. Yeah. We'll link all that in the show notes so you guys can uh, find exactly where uh, the beer king is at. So again, thanks again so much for your time, Nick and Alicia. Thank you, Lord Felix. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.